What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the probable cause affidavit in the case of Brian Christopher Koberger. First, I will offer a brief background of the Idaho quadruple murder case, move to a summary of the probable cause affidavit, then offer my analysis. On November 13, 2022, not long after 4 a.m., four college students were murdered in a rental home at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho. Two other female residents of the house were not attacked or injured. After investigating for several weeks, the police came to believe that a man named Brian Christopher Koberger was responsible. During the early morning hours of December 30, 2022, he was arrested at his family's home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. Brian was extradited to Idaho. He has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder, as well as felony burglary. The police believe that Brian acted alone. At the time making this video, Brian enjoys the presumption of innocence as he remains incarcerated in Idaho. The police really couldn't say much about the case. Therefore, there was a lot of mystery surrounding what evidence they had or didn't have against Brian. Some of that mystery was alleviated on January 5, 2023, when the probable cause affidavit was released. Now moving to a summary of the probable cause affidavit. The document starts by describing how the police responded to the King Road rental house where the murders took place. They discovered the bodies of the four victims, 20-year-old Zana Kernodal and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin, were found on the second floor, 21-year-old Kaylee Gonsalves and 21-year-old Madison Mogan were found in a bedroom on the third floor. Next to Madison's body, the police found a tan leather knife sheath. It looked like it was designed for a K-bar knife, like the kind used by the U.S. Marine Corps. The laboratory eventually found DNA on the button snap for the knife sheath. It came from an unknown male. The affidavit refers to the two survivors in the house as DM and BF. Other sources indicated that DM stands for Dylan Mortensen and BF stands for Bethany Funk. Investigators were able to reconstruct some of the timeline. On the evening of November 12, five female residents of the rental house 
plus Zana's boyfriend, Ethan, were out in the town of Moscow. All six of them returned to the house by 2 a.m. They were all asleep, or at least in their rooms, by about 4 a.m. Dylan Mortensen told the police that she was awakened at about 4 a.m. by what sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in a third-floor bedroom. Not long after this, Dylan thought that she heard Kaylee say something like, there's someone here. The police think it could have been Zana who said this because she was likely awake. She was on a social media platform at 4.12 a.m. and had received a DoorDash delivery at about 4 a.m. In response to hearing the sound, Dylan looked out of her bedroom door but didn't see anything. She looked out for a second time when she thought she heard crying coming from Zana's room. At this point, Dylan heard a male voice say something like, it's okay, I'm going to help you. A security camera was mounted to another residence less than 50 feet from the west wall of Zana's bedroom. At 4.17 a.m., the camera captured voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. Also, there was a dog barking. Dylan heard crying again and opened her door for a third time. She saw a male that she did not recognize walking toward her. He was wearing black clothing and a mask. The man had bushy eyebrows. Dylan was frozen in shock. The man exited out of the sliding glass door. Dylan locked herself in her bedroom. Just outside Dylan's door, the police found a latent shoe print, which had a diamond-shaped pattern. This corroborated Dylan's story. The police searched the area surrounding the house looking for additional video. They identified a white Hyundai Elantra, which had been in the area. It did not have a front license plate. The vehicle passed the King Road rental house three times before the murders. At 4.04 a.m., the vehicle was captured entering the area for a fourth time. It was seen in front of the King Road residence. The driver completed a three-point churn and drove east. At 4.20 a.m., the vehicle was captured driving quickly out of the area and was on a road that leads to Pullman, Washington. The police believe that the man Dylan saw was the killer, and the murders took place between 4 a.m. and 4.25 a.m., despite their statement that the vehicle drove away at 4.20 a.m. Believing the killer's vehicle drove toward Pullman, the police looked at video from cameras in that area. They found what appeared to be the same Hyundai Elantra driving toward Moscow, Idaho, just before 3 a.m. The vehicle returned to Pullman at about 5.25 a.m. A Washington State University police officer searched the database for white Hyundai Elantra sedans and found one registered in the state of Pennsylvania to a man named Brian Koberger. He lived in an apartment in Pullman, three quarters of a mile away from where the white Hyundai Elantra was captured on video. The vehicle was registered in Pennsylvania, a state that does not require a front license plate. The police looked at the photograph for Brian's driver's license and noticed that he had bushy eyebrows and generally matched the description that Dylan provided. On November 18, 2022, five days after the murders, Brian registered the vehicle in the state of Washington, so he changed the registration for that car. Investigators tracked Brian as he left the state of Washington and drove to Albrightsville, Pennsylvania, where his family lived. He arrived at his family's home on December 16. Cell phone data from Brian's phone was analyzed, on November 13, at 2.47 a.m., this is just over an hour before the murders, Brian's phone left his apartment in Pullman. The phone stopped reporting to the network that same minute. 
as if it had been deactivated. The phone reported to the network again at 4.48 a.m. It traveled from the Moscow area to Pullman. This movement was consistent with the movement of the white Hyundai Elantra captured on video surveillance. Cell phone data also revealed something else. On at least 12 occasions from June 2022 through the day of the murders, the phone had been in the area of the King Road house. All of the visits, except for one, were in the late evening or early morning. The cell phone returned to the area of the house at about 9.12 a.m. on the day of the murders. This makes it look as though the killer returned to the scene of the crime. The police in Pennsylvania collected trash from the Koberger family residence in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. Ryan's DNA matched the DNA on the knife sheath found at the crime scene. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now. Now moving to my analysis. Based on information from the affidavit and other sources, do I think that Brian Koberger is guilty of the murders? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that Brian is guilty, starting with the inculpatory factors. Brian's DNA was found on a knife sheath next to one of the murder victims. The injuries that the victim sustained are consistent with a knife that would fit in that sheath. The knife was never found. Ryan's vehicle was seen entering the area of the King Road house right before the murders and was seen speeding away right after. Ryan changed the registration of his vehicle five days after the murders. Ryan's cell phone was in the area of the King Road house several times in the months leading up to the murders. It was mostly there during hours consistent with stalking behavior. On the night of the murders, his phone stopped reporting to the network not long before the crime and resumed reporting not long after the crime. His phone returned to the area of the King Road house several hours after the murders. An eyewitness in the house was close to the killer and was able to get a good look at him. Ryan matched the description of the man she observed. Not long before his arrest, when the FBI had Ryan under surveillance, they noticed that he washed the inside of his vehicle. They said he did not miss an inch. They also noticed that Ryan would take the trash out of his parents' house at night while wearing surgical gloves. On one occasion, he dumped the trash in a neighbor's garbage container at about 4 a.m. Moving to the exculpatory factors, the killer could have stolen, borrowed, or otherwise obtained the knife sheath from Brian, or Brian could have simply touched a sheath owned by the killer, 
Just because the sheath was in the King Road house doesn't mean that Bryant was also in the house. The man who was presumably the killer was wearing a mask. There's no way to be sure that it was Brian. The witness saw bushy eyebrows, which Brian had, but a lot of people have this feature. Somebody could have taken Brian's phone and his car, or perhaps Brian was only the driver, like his passenger committed the murders without Brian's knowledge. It appears as though Brian was stalking someone at the King Road house, but that doesn't mean he was the killer. As far as Brian taking the trash out while wearing gloves, perhaps he does not want to get his hands dirty. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Brian Koberger is guilty? Yes, I believe he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. As I mentioned, he has the presumption of innocence. A jury will have to decide his fate. Moving to the next section, here are my thoughts on a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, there is this theory that Brian was planning the perfect murder. This is supported by him being a PhD criminology student who was described as exceptionally intelligent. I think the probable cause affidavit removes any doubt about this theory. If Brian is the killer, his motive was based on obsession, revenge, and or sexual domination, not because he was trying to plan the perfect murder. One amazing aspect of this case is that Brian was seemingly so functional, yet capable of allegedly committing a crime like this. He stood out as socially awkward, bizarre, and strange, but nobody thought he was homicidal. He didn't have a great disguise, but he had a good disguise. Item number two, if Brian is guilty, it amazes me that a highly intelligent PhD student who studied criminology would make so many mistakes. He left his DNA on an item that can be tied directly to the crime. It wasn't like it was on something innocuous where there may have been a non-homicidal explanation for how it could have ended up there, like some type of consumer good that he touched in a store and then one of the residents bought it and brought it back in the house. It was on something that the killer would have touched. Brian left his phone on when he visited the King Road house multiple times in the months leading up to the murders. He didn't realize how suspicious it looked that he turned his phone off during the murders. He used his own vehicle to drive to and from the residence of the victims, and he left a witness alive. Item number three, one of the more confusing elements revealed in the affidavit is the encounter between Dylan and the killer. Why did she lock herself in her bedroom but not call the police? There are several possibilities here. Perhaps there were substances in the area and she did not want to draw the attention of law enforcement. Maybe she had recently used substances and was impaired. She could have wanted to call the police, but her phone was not in the bedroom with her. Maybe Dylan didn't believe that the person she saw was a killer or that they did anything bad at all. This one doesn't seem to fit with her locking the door, but it is still possible. And the last possibility is that she had an acute stress response and froze. Let's examine this last possibility more closely. When a person encounters a life-threatening situation, they often have a reaction that's referred to as the acute stress response or the freeze, fight, or flight response. The order of freeze, fight, or flight is different depending on the conceptualization. Some researchers say fight, flight, or freeze. Others just have fight or flight. There are a lot of variations. One, two, or all three of these reactions can occur as part of any given response. Some people may only fight. Some may only freeze. Others may exhibit flight, but will fight when they are cornered. 
It all depends on the person and the circumstances. The freeze behavior is referred to as tonic immobility or non-volitional freeze response. The idea behind it is that if an organism freezes, an attacker may lose interest. This is helpful for animals, but not very good for humans. Also with some animals, the vision of predators is highly dependent on movement, so freezing can make an organism hard to see. Again, this is not really helpful in most confrontations involving humans. If one human is attacking another and the victim freezes, the human who is attacking is not going to look around and say, where'd they go? Human vision is not dependent on movement like we see with many animals. The acute stress response theory is interesting, but even if Dylan had a freeze response, it's very unlikely it would have lasted more than a few minutes. It does not adequately explain waiting for hours. There is no such thing as a deep freeze response. Item number four, if Brian was the killer, why did he leave Dylan alive? There are a few possibilities. One, Brian had tunnel vision and didn't even see her standing there. I think this is unlikely, but technically possible. Two, Brian had killed the person he intended to kill. His mission was complete. Three, Brian was physically exhausted. He simply didn't have the energy to commit any more homicides that night. Four, Brian figured that Dylan had already called the police because any reasonable person would have called the police under those circumstances. With the police already on the way, killing another person would have taken more time that Brian did not have. This is supported by the fact that he sped away from the scene instead of just driving away at a normal speed. He risked attracting attention when, in reality, he didn't need to. Now moving to my final thoughts. The victims in this case had no idea there was a killer stalking their residence. There was no way for them to predict that one day he would simply walk in or break in and viciously attack them. Again, they didn't even know he existed or was stalking them. They probably felt safe, especially considering how many people were in the house. I imagine it never occurred to them that a crime like this could happen. Sometimes a crime is so brazen, unusual, unexpected, and horrific that it catches people off guard. It enters the realm of the unthinkable. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Allegedly is back for season two. A new crime every time. In each episode of Allegedly, you'll hear a crime told to you by the person who experienced it, intermingled with actor portrayals, original music, immersive soundscapes, to create a cinematic experience for your ear. Season 2's stories include a young woman finding salvation in God, only to realize the leader of her church was running a sex cult. A case of a con artist swindling a kindly older man until he couldn't do anything to stop her. A landlord exploiting a mentally disabled man and keeping him a virtual prisoner. An act of bullying spinning a promising young man's life into total chaos. And a luxury boat captain inexplicably detained in a foreign prison with seemingly no hope of ever getting out. New episodes release every other week. Look for Allegedly from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts.